Hi everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Best of Jack London. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I did this story about eight years ago, and you can tell by the quality. But it's one of my very favorite Jack London stories, and I think it holds up today. It's called The Mexican. It's a two-part story, and today I'm offering part one. It's got a rather long introduction as we explain the true story behind the story, but I think you'll appreciate it, and it's a little bit of history as well. So without further ado, The Mexican by Jack London, Part 1. This tense Jack London story titled The Mexican was written during the Mexican Revolution while Jack London was in El Paso, Texas. It was first published in the Saturday Evening Post, then republished by Grosset and Dunlop, in the collection of short stories, The Night Born. The protagonist is based on the real-life Joe Rivers, the pseudonym of a Mexican revolutionary whose boxing winnings supported the Junta Revolucionaria Mexicana, a group of revolutionaries in exile. Joe Rivers eventually retired from boxing and became an ice delivery person in El Paso. One of these days, we're going to do the story of the Mexican Revolution, which took place between 1910 and 1920, during which time the educated and forward-thinking people of Mexico, chafing under a dictatorship pretending to be a republic, initiated a bloody revolution that eventually spilled over into the U.S., drawing U.S. military forces under the command of General John Blackjack Pershing to enter the fray. This two-part story centers around Felipe Rivera, the son of a Mexican printer, who had published articles favorable to striking workers in the hydraulic power plants of Rio Blanco, Veracruz. The workers are locked out, and the federal troops are sent against them. Rivera escapes the massacre by climbing over the bodies of the deceased, including those of his mother and father. He makes his way to El Paso, Texas, where he comes into contact with the Junta Revolucionaria Mexicana. He volunteers to serve the revolution at the office of the junta, who, suspicious, put him to work doing menial labor. Soon, however, he is dispatched to Baja, California to reestablish connections between Los Angeles revolutionaries and the peninsula. Exceeding these orders, he assassinates Federal General Juan Alvarado and returns to El Paso. The fate of the revolution hangs in the balance as the junta scrambles to finance the revolutionary armies. Rivera, who has been boxing on the local circuit to support the junta, decides to fight the well-known boxer Danny Ward in order to secure the funds needed by the junta. He negotiates a winner-take-all contract for the fight on Ward's condition that the weigh-in occur at 10 in the morning rather than immediately prior to the fight. The fight lasts 17 rounds. The popular story has spawned two film adaptations and a TV movie. In researching this story, I came across an interesting footnote that you might enjoy. This written by Mario T. in 1995. In Chapter 3, Border Depression, Memories of Chicano History, The Life and Narrative of Bert Corona. I read quite a few of Jack London's books, especially at the encouragement of my English teacher. I became interested in London's life because he had been in El Paso during the time of the Mexican Revolution and had written a story about a man who at one time had delivered ice to our home. 
The man's name was Joe Rivers. London's story about Rivers was called The Mexican, and it was later made into a screenplay and a film. In the story, London depicted Rivers as a campesino from Mexico who, after his wife is raped and killed by the Federales, joins Pancho Villa's forces. Villa sends Rivers to the border to acquire guns and ammunition. In El Paso, he comes into contact with the Junta, a group my father worked with. Rivers remained on the border and became a prize fighter. He fought for the welterweight and lightweight championship and then donated all his prize money to the Junta. He later retired from fighting and became an ice delivery man in El Paso. And now, The Mexican by Jack London, Part 1. Nobody knew his history. They had the Junta least of all. He was their little mystery, their big patriot. And in his way, he worked as hard for the coming Mexican Revolution, as did they. They were tardy in recognizing this, for not one of the Junta liked him. The day he first drifted into their crowded, busy rooms, they all suspected him of being a spy, one of the bought tools of the Diaz Secret Service. Too many of the comrades were in civil and military prisons scattered all over the United States, and others of them, in irons, were even then being taken across the border to be lined up against adobe walls and shot. At the first sight, the boy did not impress them favorably. Boy he was, not more than 18, and not over large for his years. He announced that he was Felipe Rivera, and that it was his wish to work for the revolution. That was all. Not a wasted word, no further explanation. He stood waiting. There was no smile on his lips, no geniality in his eyes. Big, dashing Paulino Vera felt an inward shudder. Here was something forbidding, terrible, inscrutable. There was something venomous and snake-like in the boy's black eyes. They burned like cold fire, as with a vast, concentrated bitterness. He flashed them from the faces of the conspirators to the typewriter which little Miss Sethby was industriously operating. His eyes rested on hers but an instant. She had chanced to look up, and she, too, sensed the nameless something that made her pause. She was compelled to read back in order to regain the swing of the letter she was writing. Paulino Vera looked questioningly at Arellano and Ramos, and questioningly they looked back to each other. The indecision of doubt brooded in their eyes. This slender boy was the unknown, vested with all the menace of the unknown. He was unrecognizable, something quite beyond the ken of honest, ordinary revolutionists whose fiercest hatred for Diaz and his tyranny, after all, was only that of honest and ordinary patriots. Here was something else they knew not what. But Vera, always the most impulsive, the quickest to act, stepped into the breach. Very well, he said coldly. You say you want to work for the revolution. Take off your coat. Hang it over there. I will show you. Come. Where are the buckets and cloths? The floor is dirty. You will begin by scrubbing it, and by scrubbing the floors of the other rooms. The spittoons need to be cleaned. Then there are the windows. Is it for the revolution? 
the boy asked. It is for the revolution, Vera answered. Rivera looked cold suspicion at all of them, then proceeded to take off his coat. It is well, he said, and nothing more. Day after day he came to his work, sweeping, scrubbing, cleaning. He emptied the ashes from the stoves, brought up the coal and kindling, and lighted the fires before the most energetic one of them was at his desk. Can I sleep here? he asked once. Aha! So that was it. The hand of Diaz showing through. To sleep in the rooms of the junta meant access to their secrets, to the lists of names, to the addresses of comrades down on Mexican soil. The request was denied, and Rivera never spoke of it again. He slept they knew not where, and ate they knew not where, nor how. Once, Arellano offered him a couple of dollars. Rivera declined the money with a shake of his head. When Vera joined in and tried to press it upon him, he said, I am working for the revolution. It takes money to raise a modern revolution, and always the junta was pressed. The members starved and toiled, and the longest day was none too long, and yet there were times when it appeared as if the revolution stood or fell on no more than a matter of a few dollars. Once, the first time, when the rent of the house was two months behind and the landlord was threatening dispossession. It was Felipe Rivera, the scrub boy in the poor, cheap clothes, worn and threadbare, who laid $60 in gold on May Sethby's desk. There were other times. 300 letters clicked out on the busy typewriters, appeals for assistance, for sanctions from the organized labor groups, requests for square news deals to the editors of newspapers, protests against the high-handed treatment of revolutionists by the United States courts, lay unmailed, awaiting postage. Vera's watch had disappeared, the old-fashioned gold repeater that had been his father's. Likewise had gone the plain gold band from May Sethby's third finger. Things were desperate. Ramos and Arellano pulled their long mustaches in despair. The letters must go off, and the post office allowed no credit to purchasers of stamps. Then it was that Rivera put on his hat and went out. When he came back, he laid a thousand two-cent stamps on May Sethby's desk. I wonder if it is the cursed gold of Diaz, said Vera to the comrades. They elevated their brows and could not decide. And Felipe Rivera, the scrubber for the revolution, continued, as the occasion arose, to lay down gold and silver for the junta's use. And still they could not bring themselves to like him. They did not know him. His ways were not theirs. He gave no confidences. He repelled all probing. Youth that he was, they could never nerve themselves to dare question him. A great and lonely spirit, perhaps. I do not know. I do not know, Arellano said helplessly. He is not human, said Ramos. His soul has been seared, said May Sethby. Light and laughter have been burned out of him. He is like one dead, and yet he is fearfully alive. He has been through hell, said Vera. No man could look like that who has not been through hell, and he is only a boy. Yet they could not like him. 
He never talked, never inquired, never suggested. He would stand listening, expressionless, a thing dead, save for his eyes, coldly burning, while their talk of the revolution ran high and warm. From face to face and speaker to speaker, his eyes would turn, boring like gimlets of iridescent ice, disconcerting and perturbing. He is no spy, Vera confided to Mary Sethby. He is a patriot. Mark me, the greatest patriot of us all. I know it. I feel it. Here in my heart and head I feel it. But him I know not at all. He is a bad temper, said May Sethby. I know, said Vera, with a shudder. He has looked at me with those eyes of his. They do not love. They threaten. They are as savage as a wild tiger's. I know, if I should prove unfaithful to the cause, that he would kill me. He has no heart. He's as pitiless as steel, keen and cold as frost. He is like moonshine on a winter night when a man freezes to death on some lonely mountaintop. I am not afraid of Diaz and all his killers, but this boy, of him, I am afraid. I tell you true, I am afraid. He is the breath of death. Yet Vera it was who persuaded the others to give the first trust to Rivera. The line of communication between Los Angeles and Lower California had broken down. Three of the comrades had dug their own graves and been shot into them. Two more were United States prisoners in Los Angeles. Juan Alvarado, the federal commander, was a monster. All their plans did he checkmate. They could no longer gain access to the active revolutionists and the incipient ones in Lower California. Young Rivera was given his instructions and dispatched south. The line of communication was reestablished, and Juan Alvarado was dead. He had been found in bed, a knife hilt deep in his breast. This had exceeded Rivera's instructions, but they of the junta knew the times of his movements. They did not ask him. He said nothing, but they looked at one another and conjectured. I have told you, said Vera, Diaz has more to fear from his youth than from any man. He is implacable. He is the hand of God. The bad temper mentioned by May Sethby and sensed by them all was evidenced by physical proofs. Now he appeared with a cut lip, a blackened cheek, or a swollen ear. It was patent that he brawled. Somewhere in that outside world where he ate and slept, gained money, and moved in ways unknown to them. As the time passed, he had come to set type for the little revolutionary sheet they published weekly. There were occasions when he was unable to set type, when his knuckles were bruised and battered, when his thumbs were injured and helpless when one arm or the other hung wearily at his side while his face was drawn with unspoken pain. Oh, wastrel, said Arellano. A frequenter of low places, said Ramos. But where does he get the money? Vera demanded. Only today, just now, have I learned that he paid the bill for white paper, one hundred and forty dollars. These are his absences, said May Sethby. 
He never explains them. We should set a spy upon him, Ramos propounded. I should not care to be that spy, said Vera. I fear you would never see me again, save to bury me. He has a terrible passion. Not even God would he permit to stand between him and the way of his passion. I feel like a child before him, Ramos confessed. To me, he is power. He is the primitive, the wild wolf, the striking rattlesnake, the stinging centipede, said Arellano. He is the revolution incarnate, said Vera. He is the flame and the spirit of it, the insatiable cry for vengeance that makes no cry, but that slays noiselessly. He is a destroying angel in moving to the still watchers of the night. I could weep over him, said May Sethby. He knows nobody. He hates all people. Us he tolerates, for we are the way of his desire. He is alone, lonely. Her voice broke in a half sob, and there was dimness in her eyes. Rivera's ways and times were truly mysterious. There were periods when they did not see him for a week at a time. Once he was away a month. These occasions were always capped by his return, when, without advertisement or speech, he laid gold coins on May Sethby's desk. Again, for days and weeks, he spent all his time with the junta. And yet again, for irregular periods, he would disappear through the heart of each day, from early morning until late afternoon. At such times, he came early and remained late. Our Lino had found him at midnight, setting type with fresh, swollen knuckles. Or maybe it was his lip, new split, that still bled. The time of the crisis approached. Whether or not the revolution would be dependent upon the junta, and the junta was hard-pressed. The need for money was greater than ever before, while money was harder to get. Patriots had given their last cent, and now could give no more. Section gang laborers, fugitive peons from Mexico, were contributing half their scanty wages. But more than that was needed. The heartbreaking, conspiring, undermining toil of years approached fruition. The time was ripe. The revolution hung on the balance. One shove more, one last heroic effort, and it would tremble across the scales to victory. They knew their Mexico. Once started, the revolution would take care of itself. The whole Diaz machine would go down like a house of cards. The border was ready to rise. One Yankee, with a hundred IWW men, waited the word to cross over the border and begin the conquest of Lower California. But he needed guns. And clear across to the Atlantic, the junta in touch with them all, and all of them needing guns. Mere adventurers, soldiers of fortune, bandits, disgruntled American Union men, socialists, anarchists, roughnecks, Mexican exiles, peons escaped from bondage, whipped miners from the bullpens of Coeur d'Alene and Colorado, who desired only the more vindictively to fight. All the flotsam and jetsam of wild spirits from the madly complicated modern world. And it was guns and ammunition, ammunition and guns, the unceasing and eternal cry. Fling this heterogeneous, bankrupt, vindictive mass across the border, 
and the revolution was on. The custom house, the northern ports of entry, would be captured. Diaz could not resist. He dared not throw the weight of his armies against them, for he must hold the south. And through the south, the flame would spread despite. The people would rise. The defenses of city after city would crumple up. State after state would totter down. And at last, from every side, the victorious armies of the revolution would close in on the city of Mexico itself, Diaz's last stronghold. But for the money. They had the men, impatient and urgent, who would use the guns. They knew the traders who would sell and deliver the guns. But to culture the revolution thus far had exhausted the junta. The last dollar had been spent. The last resource and the last starving patriot milked dry. And the great adventure still trembled on the scales. Guns and ammunition. The ragged battalions must be armed. But how? Ramos lamented his confiscated estates. Arlano wailed the spendthriftness of his youth. May Sethby wondered if it would have been different had they of the junta been more economical in the past. To think that the freedom of Mexico should stand or fall on a few paltry thousands of dollars, said Paulino Vera. Despair was in all their faces. Jose Amarillo, their last hope, a recent convert who had promised money, had been apprehended at his hacienda in Chihuahua and shot against his own stable wall. The news had just come through. Rivera, on his knees, scrubbing, looked up, with suspended brush, his bare arms flecked with soapy, dirty water. Will five thousand do it? He asked. They looked their amazement. Vera nodded and swallowed. He could not speak, but he was on the instant invested with a vast faith. Order the guns, Rivera said, and thereupon was guilty of the longest flow of words that they'd ever heard him utter. The time is short. In three weeks, I shall bring you the five thousand. It is well. The weather will be warmer for those who fight. Also, it is the best I can do. Vera fought his faith. It was incredible. Too many fond hopes had been shattered since he had begun to play the revolution game. He believed his threadbare scrubber of the revolution, and yet he dared not believe. You are crazy, he said. In three weeks, said Rivera, order the guns. He got up, rolled down his sleeves, and put on his coat. Order the guns, he said. I am going now. After hurrying and scurrying, much telephoning and bad language, a night session was held in Kelly's office. Kelly was rushed with business. Also, he was unlucky. He had brought Danny Ward out from New York, arranged the fight for him with Billy Carthy. The date was three weeks away, and for two days now, carefully concealed from the sporting writers, Carthy had been lying up, badly injured. There was no one to take his place. Kelly had been burning the wires east to every eligible lightweight, but they were tied up with dates and contracts, and now hope had revived, though faintly. You've got a hell of a nerve, Kelly addressed Rivera after one look 
as soon as they got together. Hate that was malignant was in Rivera's eyes, but his face remained impassive. I can lick Ward, was all he said. How do you know? You ever seen him fight? Rivera shook his head. He can beat you up with one hand and both eyes closed. Rivera shrugged his shoulders. Haven't you got anything to say? The fight promoter snarled. I can lick him. Who'd you ever fight anyway? Michael Kelly demanded. Michael was the promoter's brother and ran the Yellowstone pool rooms where he made goodly sums on the fight game. Rivera favored him with a bitter, unanswering stare. The promoter's secretary, a distinctively sporty young man, sneered audibly. Well, you know Roberts, Kelly broke the hostile silence. He ought to be here. I've sent for him. Sit down and wait. Though from the looks of you, you haven't got a chance. I can't throw the public down with a bum fight. Ringside seats are selling at $15. You know that. When Roberts arrived, it was patent that he was mildly drunk. He was a tall, lean, slack-jointed individual, and his walk, like his talk, was a smooth and languid drawl. Kelly went straight to the point. Look here, Roberts. You've been bragging you discovered this little Mexican. You know Carthy's broke his arm. Well, this little yellow streak has the gall to blow in today and say he'll take Carthy's place. What about it? It's all right, Kelly, came the slow response. He can put up a fight. I suppose you'll be saying next that he can lick Ward, Kelly snapped. Roberts considered judicially. No, I won't say that. Ward's a top-notcher and a ring general, but he can't hash house Rivera in short order. I know Rivera. Nobody can get his goat. He ain't got a goat that I could ever discover, and he's a two-handed fighter. He can throw in the sleep-makers from any position. Never mind that. What kind of a show can he put up? You've been conditioning and training fighters all your life. I take off my hat to your judgment. Can he give the public a run for its money? He sure can, and he'll worry Ward a mighty heap on top of it. You don't know that boy. I do. I discovered him. He ain't got a goat. He's a devil. He'll make Ward sit up with a show of local talent that'll make the rest of you sit up. I won't say he'll lick Ward, but he'll put up such a show that you'll all know he's a comer. All right. Kelly turned to his secretary. Ring up Ward. I warned him to show up if I thought it worthwhile. He's right across at Yellowstone, throwing chest, throwing his chest, and doing the popular. Kelly turned back to the conditioner. Have a drink? Robert sipped his highball and unburdened himself. Never did tell you. Never did tell you how I discovered the little cuss. It was a couple of years ago he showed up out at the quarters. I was getting Prane ready for his fight with Delaney. Prane's wicked. He ain't got a tickle of mercy in his makeup. I chopped up his partner's something cruel, and I couldn't find a willing boy that'd work with him. I noticed this little starved Mexican kid hanging around, and I was desperate. So I grabbed him, shoved on the gloves, and put him in. He was tougher than rawhide, but weak, and he didn't know the first letter in the alphabet of boxing. 
Praying chopped him to ribbons, but he hung on for two sickening rounds when he fainted. Starvation was what he fainted from. Battered, you couldn't have recognized him. I gave him half a dollar and a square meal. You ought to have seen him wolf it down. He hadn't had the end of a bite for a couple of days. So that's the end of him, thinks I. But the next day, he showed up, stiff and sore, ready for another half and a square meal. And he's done better as time went by. Just a born fighter and tough beyond belief. He hasn't a heart. He's a piece of ice. And he never talked 11 words in a string since I known him. He saws wood and does his work. I've seen him, the secretary said. He's worked a lot for you. All the big little fellas has tried out on him, Roberts answered. And he's learned from them. I've seen some of them he could lick, but his heart wasn't in it. I reckon he never liked the game. He seemed to act that way. He's been fighting some before the little clubs the last few months, Kelly said. Sure, but I don't know what struck him. All of a sudden, his heart got into it. He just went out like a streak and cleaned up all the little local fellows. Seemed to want the money, and he's won a bit, though his clothes don't look it. He's peculiar. Nobody knows his business. Nobody knows how he spends his time. Even when he's on the job, he plumb up and disappears most of each day soon as his work is done. Sometimes he just blows away for weeks at a time. But he don't take advice. There's a fortune in it for the fellow that gets the job of managing him, only he won't consider it. And you watch him hold out for the cash money when you get down to terms. It was at this stage that Danny Ward arrived. Quite a party it was. His manager and trainer were with him, and he breezed in like a gusty draft of geniality, good nature, and all-conqueringness. Greetings flew about, a joke here, a retort there, a smile or a laugh for everybody. Yet it was his way, and only partly, sincere. He was a good actor, and he had found geniality a most valuable asset in the game of getting on in the world. But down underneath, he was the deliberate, cold-blooded fighter and businessman. The rest was a mask. Those who knew him or trafficked with him said that when it came to brass tacks, he was Danny on the spot. He was invariably present at all business discussions, and it was urged by some that his manager was a blind whose only function was to serve as Danny's mouthpiece. Rivera's way was different. Indian blood, as well as Spanish, was in his veins, and he sat back in a corner, silent, immobile, only his black eyes passing from face to face and noting everything. So that's the guy, Danny said, running an appraising eye over his proposed antagonist. How do you do, old chap? Rivera's eyes burned venomously, but he made no sign of acknowledgement. He disliked all gringos, but this gringo he hated with an immediacy that was unusual even in him. God, Danny protested facetiously to the promoter, you ain't expecting me to fight a deaf mute. When the laughter subsided, he made another hit. Los Angeles must be on the dink when this is the best you can scare up. What kindergarten did you get him from? 
He's a good little boy, Danny. Take it from me, Roberts defended. Not as easy as he looks. And half the house is sold already, Kelly pleaded. You'll have to take him on, Danny. It's the best we can do. Danny ran another careless and unflattering glance over Rivera and sighed. I gotta be easy with him, I guess. If only he don't blow up. Robert snorted. You gotta be careful, Danny's manager warned. No taking chances with a dub that's likely to sneak a lucky one across. Oh, I'll be careful, all right, Danny smiled. I'll get in at the start and nurse him along for the dear public's sake. What do you say to 15 rounds, Kelly? And then the hay for him. That'll do, was the answer. As long as you make it realistic. Then let's get down to biz. Danny paused and calculated. Of course, 65% of the gate receipts, same as with Carthy. But the split will be different. 80 will just about suit me. And then to his manager. That right? The manager nodded. Here you. Did you get that? Kelly asked Rivera. Rivera shook his head. Well, it is this way, Kelly exposited. The purse will be 65% of the gate receipts. You're a dub, an unknown. You and Danny split, 20% going to you and 80 to Danny. That's fair, isn't it, Roberts? Roberts agreed. Very fair, Rivera. You see, you ain't got a reputation yet. What will 65% of the gate receipts be? Rivera demanded. Oh, maybe 5000 maybe as high as 8000 Danny broke in to explain. Something like that. Your share will come to something like 1000 or 1600 Pretty good for taking a licking from a guy with my reputation. What do you say? Then Rivera took their breaths away. Winner takes all, he said with finality. A dead silence prevailed. It's like candy from a baby, Danny's manager proclaimed. Danny shook his head. I've been in a game too long, he explained. I'm not casting reflections on the referee or the present company. I'm not saying nothing about bookmakers and frame-ups that sometimes happen. But what I do say is that it's poor business for a fighter like me. I play safe. There's no telling. Maybe I break my arm, eh? Or some guy slips me a bunch of dope. He shook his head solemnly. Win or lose, 80 is my split. What do you say, Mexican? Rivera shook his head. Danny exploded. He was getting down to brass tacks now. Why, you dirty little greaser, I've a mind to knock your block off right now. Roberts drawled his body to interposition between hostilities. Winner takes all, Rivera repeated sullenly. Why do you stand out that way? Danny asked. I can lick you, was the straight answer. Danny half started to take off his coat, but as his manager knew, it was a grandstand play. The coat did not come off, and Danny allowed himself to be placated by the group. Everybody sympathized with him. Rivera stood alone. Kelly took up the argument. Look here, you little fool. You're nobody. We know what you've been doing the last few months, putting away local fighters. But Danny is class. His next fight after this will be for the championship. And you're unknown. Nobody ever heard of you out of Los Angeles. 
They will, Rivera answered with a shrug. After this flight. Thanks for joining us for Jack London's The Mexican Part 1 here at the Best of Jack London. Part 2 will play next Sunday. Make a note. You don't want to miss Part 2. It's that good. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Best of Jack London. We always appreciate reviews. So if you have a moment, please do send us a review if you're enjoying these episodes. Thank you. We'll return next Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time with Part 2 of The Mexican by Jack London. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you then.